Please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Our passage for this morning is Philippians 1 through 3. Again, that's Philippians 1 through 3. And let's begin our time by reading this passage together. The Apostle Paul writes this. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. The Christian life is filled with tension. And I don't mean that in the sense of conflict necessarily, though I suppose uh, we could say it's often filled with that as well. No, what I mean is that the truths we believe often force us to navigate the distance between two equally important but almost paradoxical ideas. This is true theologically, of course. Uh, Concepts like the Trinity, you know, the idea of uh, three persons in one God. Or concepts like the deity and humanity of Christ, that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man at the same time. Or the belief that God is both entirely sovereign over human actions and that man is still responsible for his sin. Uh, Even the notions of God's wrath towards sin and his love for the sinner. These all stretch our understanding of who God is and how he's made this world. And it can take an incredible amount of discipline mentally to discern how to hold on to each theological extreme at the same time without losing your grip on the other. But these paradoxes don't just exist in the doctrinal realm, in our orthodoxy. We fight them in the realm of application or in our orthopraxy as well. What does it mean to be in the world, but not of the world? What's the difference between faith and presumption when it comes to making decisions about the future? When am I putting God to the test and when am I trusting Him to take care of me? Even something as simple as how much time should I devote to witnessing to my neighbor versus how much should I spend with my family at home, and how much should I even spend by myself alone with Christ in private devotion. These are all concepts that we struggle to hold in tension at the same time. One such concept is the tension between unity and truth. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but the church is a mess, is it not? Earlier this week, I was talking with uh, my boys, and one of them said he didn't want to be a Christian yet. And when I asked him why, he said it was because he was afraid he'd still mess up even after coming to Christ. And at the time, I just sort of chuckled to myself and thought, oh, son, if only you knew. The church is an absolute mess. And you don't even need experience to know that. You start thumbing through the pages of of the New Testament, and it's all over the place. The apostles are constantly calling the church to repent of all different types of very, very serious sin. They're constantly telling the church to put aside their pettiness and self-interest, constantly trying to extinguish the influence of all different kinds of heresies in the church. And it's fairly obvious from all of this that the church is a work in progress. We are nowhere near what we ought to be. We all mess up, even long after we come to Christ. Well, this creates a rather interesting dilemma for the Christian. 
On the one hand, the Bible tells us that one of the ways we deal with this immaturity is to be in fellowship with the body of Christ. Ephesians 4, for instance, says that the body builds itself up in love when it is joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly. And on the basis of this fact, Paul implores the Ephesians to be in fellowship with the body of Christ so that they might grow in their faith and become mature. That's the basic testimony of the New Testament. I mean, you've probably heard it before. A lone Christian is a dead Christian. Growth in Christ is something we do together. The problem is that the Bible also tells us that spiritual growth occurs through the proclamation of truth. And it even encourages us to disassociate from those who do not speak or practice the truth for this very reason. Probably the most famous example of this occurs in Matthew 18 where the Lord instructs us to excommunicate the brother who is engaged in unrepentant sin. However, even in the very next chapter of Ephesians, Ephesians 5, Paul follows up this exhortation to be unified by listing the type of conduct that does not characterize the Christian before continuing, verse 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. He says, Therefore do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness... But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. He says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. In 2 Timothy 2, 16 and 17, Paul warns Timothy, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene. He closes 1 Timothy on a similar note, 1 Timothy 6, 20 and 21. He says, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. From what what we've studied so far in the past several weeks, I think we can certainly understand the reason for these kinds of warnings in the Scripture. One of the problems with entertaining error in the church is that it can so easily spread to those who are walking in the truth. Again, Paul compares it to gangrene in one of the passages we just read. It's it's infected tissue. And just like gangrene, if you don't amputate the affected limb, then necrosis is bound to spread to the rest of the body. As we've seen over the past several weeks, this is most especially true when the error is present in the church's leaders. The leaders, after all, are at the heart of the body. Just like the heart pumps the blood that carries oxygen to every part of the body, so also do the church's teachers distribute their instruction to every part of the body. And so once an error touches them, it spreads everywhere, and it has the potential to touch everyone. And so it makes sense why the Bible would tell us, when you encounter error in the church, cut it off. Error spreads like gangrene. The problem is, how does that coincide with what the Bible tells us about the importance of unity and the role that it plays in our maturity? Again, we have these two ideas that we have to hold in tension. Again, you know, on the one hand, we're told that we need to be unified. 
because we already possess error and it's through our fellowship with one another that our error is corrected. But then on the other, we have these passages that tell us to separate from those who abide in error and sin. How does that all work? We see this very same sort of tension play out in the book of Philippians. This is an epistle that's largely concerned with the concept of unity. We've already learned, of course, that the Philippians are experiencing some measure of persecution for their faith. And as we've seen, Paul has discovered that the church is beginning to crack under the weight of this pressure. Fissures are beginning to form in the church as the church begins to blame each other for their suffering. Paul sees the, the structural integrity of the church starting to break down. And he tells the Philippians at the end of chapter 1, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. In short, Paul urges them, in light of this persecution, to face this obstacle together. He tells them to face their opponents with a united front. And this is not only because it's easier to face the enemy together than it is apart, but most specifically, Paul says, they're to do this because this is worthy of Christ. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ before going on to tell them to stand together for the gospel. And as we proceed through chapter 2, we learn something of what Paul means by this. When the father was attacked, the son didn't simply stand by and declare, that's not my problem. Instead, he placed his father's interests above his own, and he humbled himself all the way to the point of death. And he did this, of course, because there really is no ultimate division between the son and the father. The son and the father are both distinct in persons, and yet, along with the Holy Spirit, they exist as one God. So an offense against the one is an attack on the whole. And this is what Paul is driving at when he tells the Philippians that they must let their manner of life be worthy of the gospel. He's saying that unity in the body of Christ, specifically, brings honor to Christ because it reflects the nature and character of God. An attitude of humility abides in the persons of the Godhead because though many, God is yet still one. That's the theological reality that's supposed to undergird life in the body of Christ as well. The church is also made up of many distinct persons who are yet united together in one body through faith in Jesus Christ. And so unity isn't just important because it's the means by which we grow in our sanctification. And it isn't just important because it's easier to stand firm for the gospel when we're contending with our brothers and sisters at our side. No, it's also important because disunity dishonors the Lord Jesus Christ. This is important to know. Ecclesiastical unity is not a minor matter to God. Indeed, you go to the practice of the Lord's table in 1 Corinthians 11, and what you learn is that God actually cares so much about this point that some of the Corinthians are sick and some had even died due to the disunity that they are practicing in the church and that they had brought even to the Lord's table. As we learn in Philippians 2, the unity of the church reflects the glory of the gospel. And so to divide the church is to diminish the glory of Christ. So unity does matter in the body of Christ. That said, just how important is unity? How far should we go 
in maintaining the unity of the church. Again, a couple weeks back, I mentioned the Puritans' descent into Unitarianism. And I don't know if you remember this or not, but what was it that caused the Puritans' grandchildren to ultimately depart from the faith? We saw it was a desire for unity. In the words of one author, he says, They loved to emphasize the points of agreement rather than the points of difference. They were willing to make concessions for the sake of the peace of the churches. We could say, thing, say the same thing with respect to the Catholic Church, can we not? I mean, if you want to know the one value that the Roman Catholic Church cherishes above all others, you don't have to go any further than the name. They are the Catholic Church. The word Catholic, of course, means universal. And this is the quality that the Catholic Church has emphasized throughout its history above all others. There is only one church, and its unity should be preserved at all costs. That desire to maintain unity has caused the Catholic Church to harbor all kinds of error in its ranks. This is the problem with unity. At a certain level, unity requires compromise, or if not compromise exactly, at least a certain measure of grace. You have to be willing to live with a brother or sister who's less than perfect, who's still growing in their understanding of their faith, if you're going to practice unity. Again, we must be unified, right, in order to become unified. The question is, where do you draw the line? As we've seen in this ongoing series on downgrade, the problem that so often arises with compromise is that one compromise leads to another, which leads to another, which leads to another, and so on and so on until there's eventually nothing left of the truth. You've managed to preserve the unity of the church, but you've done so at the cost of the gospel. And by the time you get there, what's the point, right? I mean, the church is a body that's defined by the gospel. According to Matthew 16, it's made up of those who profess faith in Jesus as the Christ. According to Matthew 28, 19, and 20, its present mission is to proclaim the gospel. So you buy unity at the cost of Christ. And what's the point? <laughs> I think it'd be kind of like an Alcoholics Anonymous group deciding that instead of their normal AA meetings, they're going to start meeting together for drinks at the local bar instead. Right? What's the purpose then? You've denied the very basis of your community. If the point is to go drinking, then you don't need an AA group to do that. Just go with your friends. It's the same way with the church when the gospel is sacrificed for the sake of unity. So again, where do you draw the line? What sort of compromises do you make for the sake of unity? And when do you say this is too far? Essentially, when does unity become pointless? At what point does compromise Defeat the very purpose of unity. This is a question that Paul is helping to answer for us in Philippians 3, 1 through 3. In this passage, Paul follows up this exhortation for unity, which occurs in chapters 1 and 2, with a warning about the influence of certain false teachers. Basically, it would appear that a, a group of overzealous Jews have come to Philippi and they're most likely stirring up trouble for the Philippians. They're, I think they're probably even the source of the Philippians' suffering. And this has the Philippians confused. They recognize Israel as a legitimate source of spiritual authority. 
but they're unsure what to do about the fact that there appears to be this division in Israel over the proper application of the Old Testament. Paul addresses this influence by drawing a circle around the portion of Israel that represents the true Israel of God, and he separates this section from the portion of Israel that are descendants of Abraham in name only. Now, as I've said, the point of all of this is to help the Philippians distinguish between legitimate and illegitimate sources of spiritual authority. When Paul says, for we are the circumcision in verse 3, he's telling them, this is the section of Israel you can trust. And Paul then follows this up by listing three characteristics which serve as proofs of legitimate spiritual authority. But again, understand that when Paul is doing this, he's drawing a line in the sand. He's saying those individuals who are not characterized by these three proofs are actually outside of the covenant community. He even goes so far as to call them unclean dogs in verse 2. The point is that in denying these three things, they have demonstrated that they are clearly outside the faith. Well, if that's the case, then we can establish that to transgress these boundaries is to travel outside the faith. Once you cross these lines, you're no longer Orthodox. You're no longer Christian. And so for wanting to establish a minimum threshold for unity, this is an awfully good place to get to begin we cannot be unified with anyone who is not marked by these three characteristics such unity in that case would be entirely pointless so far in this series i've presented these three proofs as three warning signs for downgrade basically i've urged you to watch your teachers because this is where the slide into apostasy often begins. It begins with those who appear to be, a legitimate, to be a legitimate source of spiritual truth. And I've said that if you begin to see any of these proofs missing in the life or doctrine of a teacher, then you need to be very cautious, because good-intentioned or not, that man is liable to make compromises that will lead the church away from the faith. For consistency's sake, that's how I'd like to proceed again this morning. I want to urge you to watch out for the leader who fails to demonstrate these marks in his life. But as we go, I'd urge you to keep this in the back of your mind as well. What we're seeing here is the minimum threshold for fellowship in the body of Christ. Once one of these three points is denied, then who or what you're dealing with is no longer Christian. And there's no longer any purpose in fighting for unity. In fact, this is precisely why, precisely why we must watch for these types of characteristics in our leaders. Is because when a man starts to compromise on any of these points, he's starting us down the path of downgrade. He's starting us down the path that will eventually take us outside of the faith. The first proof we looked at last week, and that's worship by the Spirit of God, just as you can distinguish the true teacher from the false by, the, by their spirit-fueled obedience, so also you can distinguish the genuine believer by their obedience to the Word of God. Again, this is why the Scripture encourages us to separate from those who do not obey the Word of God. It's because we're not actually united in the same body by the same Spirit. 
So again, this would be one threshold for unity. We cannot be united with those who do not obey the Word of God. Let's look now at the second proof of legitimate spiritual authority, and that's Christ-centered hope. Christ-centered hope. The acknowledgement of Jesus Christ specifically as both Lord and Savior is a bare minimum threshold for fellowship. So beware the leader who does not fix the Christian's hope entirely on Jesus Christ, for that man is prone to make key concessions to the faith. Once again, as we come down to Philippians 3, we discover that the Philippians are wrestling with their own type of compromise. This compromise would seem to come in the form of circumcision. And as I've explained over the past several weeks, they're apparently wrestling with this idea because of the pressure that's being exerted by a group of overzealous Jews. There's nothing about this group, this outside group, to indicate that they would be in any way, uh, that they would in any way identify themselves as Christians. And yet the Philippians are either already questioning or they're soon to question whether or not they should adopt circumcision under their influence. Now, you might wonder why the Philippians would make this consideration, considering how these Jews would not identify themselves as brothers. And the reason lies in the fact that that sort of distinction, meaning the distinction between the Christian and the Jew, had not yet been established as clearly as we would understand it today. It was still being forged in passages like this one, where, again, Paul is drawing a line in the sand and saying, these fellows here are not one of us. They're not to be trusted. Christianity, remember, is really nothing more than authentic Judaism. We probably lose sight of this from time to time today, but it's true. What we would call Christianity is not a new religion. Rather, it's a continuation of the faith that was once communicated to men like Abraham and Moses. This means that when the gospel first started advancing among the Gentiles, it was originally understood to be just another Jewish sect. And so when a group of Jews came along like this one and start challenging some of Paul's teachings, and most particularly his teaching on the law, it wouldn't have been apparent to these first Christians at first what to do. Okay, so we don't agree on Jesus. Does that necessarily mean that we should ignore everything they have to say? We both believe in the same God after all. We both believe in the same scriptures. Well, they're telling us that Moses commanded the people to be circumcised. And I mean, I do see that in my Bible. So maybe they have a point. Maybe we should be circumcised. These are the thoughts that would have been running through the minds of these first believers. Keep in mind, these are theological, theological neophytes. Most of the Philippians were probably not God-fearers before they became Christians. There was no synagogue in Philippi for them to attend before they started following Christ. And so all of this would have been very new to them, even several years later as Paul writes this letter. So hopefully you can see where this is coming from. You have these two groups of Israelites who have two very different opinions about the proper application of the Jewish Pentateuch. And while the Philippians sided with Paul on the Jesus issue, it wasn't necessarily clear to them what they should do about this other matter. Paul attempts to settle the matter by informing the Philippians that this other section of Israel actually does not constitute legitimate spiritual authority. He says, verses 2 to 3, Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. 
for we are the circumcision. And the we here is emphatic, by the way. I'm not just reading it like that. Paul writes it like that. He says, we are the circumcision as opposed to them. And of course, he then provides three proofs that demonstrate his point, the second of which, again, is Christ-centered hope. And his point is that legitimate spiritual authority, and in this instance, true Israel, is marked by the fact that they've placed their faith in Jesus of Nazareth specifically. The nuance between this proof and the next one, which is Christ-based or cross-based confidence, might be difficult to grasp at first. Standing where we do on this side of the Reformation, we so closely associate the gospel with the concept of justification specifically that we may think Paul is saying the exact same thing between this point and our next one. He's not. These are not the same points. In fact, speaking of paradoxes, here's one. How does the triumphant Messiah depicted in passages like Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 fit with the notion of a crushed and suffering servant in Isaiah 53? And the answer is they don't fit together, at least not very well, apart from the knowledge of the resurrection. But the idea that, you know, this, this is something that um, the, for the Old Testament Jew, they, they had a hard time getting their minds around. They didn't see how the, these acts could be performed by the same individual. They might be able to have some sense of God's suffering for the forgiveness of their sins from the Old Testament, but the idea that this act would also be performed by the victorious Davidic king, that was a very hard concept to grasp. Even the John the Baptist struggled with this notion. You go to Matthew 3, for instance, and when Jesus comes to be baptized, John clearly understands something of Jesus' authority already. He says to Jesus, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? And yet you go over to John 1, and after baptizing Jesus, he declares, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he continues, I myself did not know him. But for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. You read that for a minute and you go, wait a second, how can John say to Jesus, I need to be baptized by you, implying you know something about Jesus' authority. And then say later on, I myself did not know him, but was sent to baptize that he might be revealed to Israel. And the answer is in the perceived distinction between these two roles. John knew that Jesus was the promised Davidic king. What he did not understand was that he was also the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He didn't have that type of concept in his framework at the time. It was only after the baptism, after he sees the Spirit descend, that he gets that. Well, it's that same sort of distinction that helps you understand Paul's point here in Philippians 3.3 as well. When he says that the true circumcision glories in Jesus Christ, he's pointing more to Jesus' identity as the promised Davidic king than he is to Jesus' work on the cross. That's not to say that either idea is entirely exclusive. As I think I'll be able to show you in a moment, Paul does have the atonement at least partly in view here. But his concern is more that the true Israelite can properly identify the Messiah than it is that they merely have set their hope on a Messiah generally. 
It's not enough to merely hope in a Messiah. Almost any Jew could claim that on at least some level. What matters is if they believe in the Messiah, and that's Jesus. Paul's point is that true Israel recognizes Jesus specifically as the Christ, or to state it another way, the true Israelite can recognize their king. And if a Jew can't do that, well, then they aren't a part of the true circumcision. They're part of unbelieving Israel. I said last week that spiritual truth is spiritually discerned and that if you want to know if a person has the Spirit of God, then this is one of the marks. They believe in Jesus because the Spirit testifies to Jesus. Well, if you want proof of that concept, this is a tremendous case in point. It's hard to pin down just precisely how many Old Testament prophecies about the Christ Jesus fulfilled because it all sort of depends on what you believe constitutes a prophecy. But the low-end estimate is probably around 200 prophecies. And some claim as far as 400 or more. Either way, if a man fulfills that many prophecies about the Christ, and you still say he's not the Messiah, I'm sorry, you're spiritually blind. There's just no other way to explain it. And that's essentially Paul's point here as well. The Philippians know, they know that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. And they believe that He is the Messiah. And Paul's point is to say, you're going to tell me that the Jew who denies all of that is a reliable interpreter of the Bible? Come on, give me a break. No, listen, ignore what they're saying to you about circumcision. They don't know what circumcision is about. We do. And you can know that we understand it because we can read our Bibles and see Jesus in there just the same as you can. This is, therefore, one of the proofs of legitimate spiritual authority. They recognize Jesus as the Christ. In fact, it even goes a step further than this. They don't just recognize Jesus as the Messiah, but they glory in Him. You see that here, right? Verse 3, he says, We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. The word here for glory is kalkamai. And it means literally to boast about or take pride in. That's how the Christian Standard Bible translates this phrase. It says, For we are the circumcision, the ones who serve by the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus and do not put confidence in in the flesh. The picture is of one who has such a joyful confidence in something that they go around and brag about it. This is why I call this proof a Christ-centered hope, specifically. And this is also why I say that Paul has the atonement at least partly in view here. What he's describing here is a joyful confidence in Christ. And if we're asking where this confidence comes from, I think we could probably give at least two answers. On the one hand, I think it's probably coming from the fact that Jesus is the Christ, right? Meaning if it's coming from the knowledge that Jesus of Nazareth is the victorious king. And so at the end of the day, he will win. You know, Paul can sit under house arrest in Rome. He's, a, he's about to stand trial before the most powerful emperor on the planet. And he can tell the Philippians that he knows, chapter 1, that he will not be ashamed but that he will with full courage, now as always, honor Christ with his body, whether by life or by death. And the reason he can do that is because he knows, chapter 3, 
that his citizenship is in heaven, from which he awaits a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform his lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. And do you hear that? I mean, Paul, Paul takes confidence in the authority of Christ. The same power that enables Jesus to subject all things to himself will also enable Jesus to subject even the last enemy, which is death itself. And so who's Caesar, right? What can Caesar do to a guy like Paul? It's like what Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's how Paul lives. And the result is that for him to live as Christ and to die as gain. This is probably partly what Paul means when he says the true circumcision boasts in Jesus Christ. He means that the sovereign authority of Jesus fills them with such hope that they literally can't shut up about him. Now, you may wonder, how does that sovereign authority fill us with hope? I mean, isn't the whole point that Jesus is going to come back and crush the wicked in all that statement about his victory and subjecting all things to himself? Shouldn't that fill us with fear? And this is where the overlap with this next point comes in. The reason Paul can boast in Christ Jesus and not tremble at him is because of what he's going to say in the next proof about taking no confidence in the flesh. Paul knows that the penalty for his sin has been completely paid. As he's, going to, going to, as he's going to go on and explain in the rest of this chapter, he gains a righteousness from Christ that he could never achieve on his own. In other words, the reason Paul can look forward to death and judgment is because he knows he's already made righteous in God's eyes through the finished work of Jesus Christ. There's nothing left for him to do to give him a right standing before God since as he's about to explain, he's already counted perfect in Christ. This would be the other reason why a guy like Paul could go around bragging on Jesus to others. It's not just, that, not just because he can face the future without fear. It's also because in Christ, God has given him this indescribably wonderful gift. To understand that at the heart of the gospel is the idea that we deserve eternal punishment and instead have received eternal life. And I know that we say that this is an absolutely free gift, and, and from our perspective, this is true. As it says in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Salvation is free for us, but it's not free for God. God purchased that gift at an incredible price. Did He not? It came at the sacrifice of His own Son. Jesus suffered terribly to purchase that gift for us. He suffered the penalty for our sin for us. As we saw back in chapter 2, Jesus literally, He literally gave up everything. Right? Became highest point in heaven, lowest slave on earth, all to purchase this gift for us. And that's the other reason why a guy like Paul goes around boasting in Christ Jesus. It's because he can't get over what a tremendously wonderful gift has been given to him and at what cost. 
and, and that it was paid by his king, no less. I mean, most kings demand service, but this king gives it. And that's some king, is it not? Who wouldn't want to go and be under the authority of that king? And who wouldn't want to tell others of their good fortune? That they've been purchased by such a rich and gracious master. This is where this boasting comes from. This is what Paul means by glorying in Christ Jesus. So again, this is more than just a recognition that Paul is talking about here. The true circumcision, he says, not only identifies the king, they delight in him. They find their hope in him. Jesus isn't just their king, he's the source of their joy. And again, this isn't anything new. It may have been difficult to understand, but the Old Testament did explain that salvation would occur through a specific individual. So the section of Israel that recognizes this and sets their hope on this individual, they are the true stewards of the oracles of God. They are the legitimate spiritual authority. So once again, proof number two is Christ-centered hope. Legitimate spiritual authority glories in Christ Jesus. From this proof, I think we can establish at least three warning signs to watch for with respect to downgrade. Again, here are three characteristics that the church needs to look out for and to watch for most specifically amongst its leaders if it's going to avoid gospel downgrade. The first warning sign is this. Number one, watch out for those leaders who deny the orthodox doctrine of the atonement. Let me say that one more time. Watch out for those leaders who deny the doctrine of the atonement. Let me explain to you what I mean here because there's some nuance in what I'm saying here and the distinction is important. Again, downgrade occurs because of the inability to make distinctions like the one I'm about to make for you. So listen closely here. Once again, our next proof is cross-based confidence. And I'm taking this from this statement where Paul says he places no confidence in the flesh. The point there, of course, is that salvation occurs by grace alone through faith alone and not by the works of the law. However, what this, what this proof adds, the one we're talking about today, what this proof adds is the importance of understanding that Orthodox Christian faith not only believes that salvation occurs by grace alone through faith alone, Orthodox Christian faith also believes that it occurs in Christ alone. Again, there's some nuance in what I'm saying here. So again, please listen closely to this. There are some who act as if people can be saved apart from faith in Jesus Christ. They don't necessarily advocate salvation by works. They're not saying that a person must be a good person in order to be saved. Instead, they'll say that God is a gracious God. And if a person simply asks him for forgiveness, then he will forgive their sin. In other words, it's not necessary that a person believe in Jesus to be saved. They only need to ask for grace. And this is thoroughly unchristian. This is outside the faith. 
The scriptures say that the basis of God's grace is the cross of Jesus Christ. God doesn't overlook sin. He punishes it in Jesus Christ. This is the only way for God to be both just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus Christ. It's because he isn't ignoring sin. He's punishing it in Christ. Again, the gift of salvation is purchased at a price. It's free to us, but it's not entirely free. There was a cost in achieving salvation, that cost being the blood of Christ. And this is why we as Christians say that if a person does not believe in Christ specifically, then they cannot be saved. It's because we believe in a concept that's formally known as penal substitution, which says that Jesus suffered for our sins in our place, and that's the basis of our forgiveness. And the idea is that if your sins are not punished in Jesus apart from uh, your sins are not punished in Jesus apart from faith in His name. So no faith in Christ, no atonement. No atonement, no way of salvation. If you think about it, this is the whole basis of worldwide missions. The notion of penal substitution. In other words, when you start to see someone advocating for salvation outside of faith in Jesus Christ specifically... Or to some degree, if they're even saying we should be in religious fellowship for those who do not have faith in Jesus Christ specifically, you need to watch out. What they're saying is unorthodox according to passages like Philippians 3.3. It's outside the Christian faith. Again, pay very close attention to this. There are some Christian pastors who proclaim Jesus, who profess faith in Jesus Christ, but who deny concept of substitutionary atonement. They say, listen, God isn't the one who put Jesus to death. He's not some kind of child abuser, nor does he demand a blood sacrifice. That would be barbaric. No, they say God's grace is utterly free. He forgives not on the basis of Christ's death on the cross. He simply extends us pardon because he's kind. And Christ's death is merely the result of human evil, and its purpose is to provide us with an example of what God's love looks like, or something like that. In other words, they're preaching a salvation that's by grace alone through faith alone, but they're not preaching a salvation that's in Christ alone. Listen, these men do not glory in Jesus Christ in the same way that Paul is talking about here. Their confidence before God does not rest on the work of Jesus Christ. And in that sense, they are outside the faith. They are not joined to the true circumcision who boast in Christ Jesus. Again, watch out for those men. Stay away from them. They may look like genuine spiritual authority, and most especially since they proclaim Jesus. But do not be deceived. They do not glory in Him. They need to be avoided. They're dangerous. Warning sign number two. Watch out for those leaders who do not set one's hope on Jesus Christ. Again, watch out for those leaders who do not set one's hope on Jesus Christ. This is where the error really starts to get subtle. And I think this is where downgrade is usually going to begin. With the first warning sign, there's at least an outright denial of the faith. When a person just simply says that salvation can occur apart from faith in Jesus Christ, they're clearly crossing the line. They're verbally expressing it. With this warning sign, they're not denying the need for the atonement. They're just not emphasizing it. They're ignoring it. 
I don't know if you recall, but in last week's message, I said that when a pastor falls into sin, it doesn't necessarily invalidate everything he taught. But that it's probably worth examining what he did teach, since at the very least, his fall into sin would seem to indicate that he's not worshiping by the Spirit. And I went on to say that because he wasn't worshiping by the Spirit, the problem may not be that he was teaching error, but that he wasn't teaching truth, meaning there's a good chance that he was not emphasizing the things that need to be emphasized in our faith. The problem wasn't what he, what he was saying, it's what he wasn't saying. And this is what I had in mind. This is where I was going with that thought. I bet if you go back and listen to their teaching, much of the time they either stop touching on the cross altogether or they only touch on it lightly. Again, the pastor wasn't teaching error per se. He just stopped emphasizing the most essential truths to our faith. Instead, oddly enough, I bet if you go back and look, he probably ended up preaching a kind of moralism. And the reason for this is because they've actually convinced themselves that God doesn't really care about sin. That's either how they ended up getting ensnared in their sin in the first place. They already believed that God doesn't care about sin, and so they didn't think it was a very big deal when they started down the path to sin. Or that's how they quieted their conscience. They started down the path of sin, and then they told themselves that God doesn't really care about sin in order to make themselves feel better about it. Either way, the point is that you can't really do that when the doctrine of penal substitution is central in your thinking. Because if the cross says anything, it's that God cares about sin immensely. In fact, it says that He cares about sin enough that the only way for Him to forgive us our sin was by crushing His Son. So how do you act like God treats sin lightly if that's in your thinking? I mean, that's, that's Paul's whole point in Romans 6. How can we say, let's continue in sin that grace may abound if Jesus died to free us from the penalty and power of sin? This probably got mixed up somewhere in the pastor's thinking. He probably started to misunderstand the grace of God in forgiving sin as apathy towards sin. A lot of people get confused on that point. And that's not how the cross works. The cross tells us that God hates sin while still forgiving us of it. This pastor probably forgot this point, and that's where his own downgrade started. And the effect was that not only did he start down the path of sin, but he probably stopped preaching the cross as well. After all, if God doesn't care about sin, then what do you need the cross for, right? And do you know, how, do you know what uh, pastors in that situation start preaching instead? Oddly enough, it's often a kind of moralism meaning the focus of his messages become not the atonement of Christ, but the example of Christ. Basically, he spends most of his time telling the congregant how they need to be more like Jesus. And at first blush, there may not be anything wrong with this. In fact, as I often tell you, right, the purpose of your justification is your sanctification. There's a sense in which now that you're in Christ, you need to focus on being like Christ. The problem is that if you listen to this man, the purpose of that sanctification is not the advancement of the gospel, and the means of that sanctification is not the focus of the cross and delight in Jesus Christ. Instead, it's a kind of moralism for moralism's sake. You try to be a good person for the sake of being a good person. 
And the way you get there isn't by taking delight in Jesus. Instead, Jesus is simply the pattern for us. Basically, Jesus becomes a new kind of law. The Israelites had the Ten Commandments to guide them, and we have Jesus. This is the case with liberal theologians as well, with those who deny either the deity of Christ or the concept of substitutionary atonement. Even if they don't preach salvation by works, they'll still end up preaching a kind of moralism. Where again, they preach Christ, but they preach Him as nothing more than a good example. They do not glory in Him in the way that Paul implies here. And again, do you know why both the fallen pastor and the liberal theologian proclaim a kind of moralism? It's because once you get rid of the cross, then what's the point? What's the purpose of Christianity? If God doesn't really care about sin, then what do you need Jesus for? Well, if it isn't to die for our sin, then it must be to show us how to live. And not even how to live for God, per se, because again, God doesn't really care about sin. No, it's how to live wisely, how to live for our benefit. You see this sort of thing all over the church, don't you? People show up to church and they sing songs that don't even mention the cross. Now, the type of songs that are so vague in their notions of God and of His love generally, that they could almost be sung by a, a Jew or a Muslim without any serious objections. There's no mention of Christ. Or when He is mentioned, there's no mention of His sacrifice for sin. Only His love without any sort of context about why it was necessary for Him to express His love. And then the pastor gets up there and he gives a very inspiring message about how rewarding it is to live like Jesus. And then he prays and everyone goes home. And no one even thinks about the fact that the cross was never mentioned. Or at least, it was never explained outside of it being a demonstration of Jesus' selfless love. The concept of God's punishment of sin is never talked about. The cross isn't seen in that light. It's too negative, people think. So all you end up with is a very nice, neat, moral story. It's so frequent, it almost seems normal, does it not? We almost expect that type of experience when we go to church. Listen, it's not normal. It's a sign of downgrade, and we're seeing how much the church has already fallen down the hill. I see the same thing in counseling. People come to their pastor because they're dissatisfied with their marriage or something like that. And the pastor doesn't challenge them to seek their satisfaction in Christ instead of in their spouse. And he doesn't show them how the gospel defines what a healthy marriage looks like. And he doesn't call on them to repent of their idols and to find the strength to worship God, which only Christ can supply through the Holy Spirit. Basically, he doesn't teach them to glory in Christ Jesus. Instead, he reaffirms the fact that the goal of counseling is a happy marriage. And then he points the couple, the couple to all these various techniques that they can apply to have a happy marriage. Christ is hardly mentioned, if he's mentioned at all. The cross doesn't serve as the basis for the pastor's counseling. Worship of Jesus Christ is not presented as the foundation of a healthy marriage. Again, the problem is not so much that the pastor taught error, it's that he failed to teach truth. He didn't give them the cross. He gave them a kind of moralism. Incidentally, Robert Schindler mentioned the exact same thing in his first downgrade article. In the very second paragraph of the first article in that series, he notes, he says, 
in proportion as ministers uh, seceded from the old pure and godliness of life and the old Calvinistic forms of doctrine, they commonly became less earnest and less simple in their preaching, more speculative and less spiritual in the matter of their discourses. He says, and dwelt more on the moral teachings of the New Testament than on the central truths of Revelation. He said their teaching became incredibly moral as a result of their departure from Christ. Again, that's because that's all you have left of Christianity once you get rid of the cross. Righteousness is wise, so be a good person. You get moral teaching instead of gospel teaching. So this is one warning sign to watch out for when looking for downgrade. Preachers on the downgrade stop setting their hearers' hope on Jesus Christ and instead start to preach a kind of moralism. The third warning sign is this, and I think we already made, I've already made most of my point here, so I just want to touch on this one very briefly. But warning sign number three, warning sign number three, watch out for the leader who does not personally glory in Jesus Christ. Watch out for the leader who does not personally glory in Jesus Christ. Now let me just underscore the fact that we're just talking about warning signs here. I'm not saying that the man who does not glory in Christ is necessarily going to lead the church into heresy. Rather, the point is that downgrade happens by degrees. And before a man stops directing others to set their hope on Christ, he first stops setting his own hope on Christ. Again, this is uh, the point I was trying to make just a few moments ago. The pastor who stops preaching the gospel to others first stops preaching the gospel to himself. He no longer boasts in the cross personally, and so he stops talking about it publicly. That's going to be one of the first signs that the church leader is susceptible to, get, to downgrade. They no longer take delight in Jesus Christ. Again, the problem isn't so much that they're teaching error. They're not denying Jesus. They're just not talking about Him anymore. There can really be any number of reasons for this type of decline. I already pointed out one it, Maybe that he's not worshiping by the Spirit. Maybe he's not spending much time in the Word, and as a result, he's losing sight of the gospel. Maybe he's entertaining sin in his life, so he's intentionally suppressing the gospel to avoid conviction of his sin. Personally, I can tell you that because of the role I play in the body of Christ, I often find myself thinking about the ends in ministry rather than the means. Basically, I understand that the point is to advance the gospel, and so I can wind up directing all my energy into the work of the ministry, and in the process, I can lose sight of Christ. I tend to think that this is what happens with a lot of pastors. They get so caught up in the work of the ministry, they spend so much energy trying to minister to others that they fail to tend to their own souls. It's not intentional. They just neglect to meditate on the cross, and step by step, by degrees, they forget the beauty of Christ, and they cease to boast in the cross. Again, there's all number of reasons why this can happen, but the reason doesn't matter so much as the result. The problem is that when a man stops finding his delight in Jesus Christ, then it's probably a sign that he no longer perceives the necessity of Jesus Christ. And when a man fails to see the necessity of Christ, he's starting down the path of downgrade. As Paul helps us see here, trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ specifically is essential to the gospel and is essential to the, to the degree that one who does not boast in Jesus is outside the faith. 
The man who does not delight in Christ is already losing sight of that fact. And this means that he will either stop directing to his people to set their hope on Christ because he fails to see the importance of it, or even worse, when he encounters those individuals who do deny the cross, who do deny the doctrine of the atonement, he'll be un unable to perceive what the big deal is. It's like I said last week, banks train tellers to discern counterfeit money by making them so familiar with the genuine article that when you hand them the fake, they'll notice that something doesn't feel quite right. Even if they can't put their finger on it, they know something's wrong, something's missing. This kind of a man has lost that ability. When the, when the counterfeit is handed to him, it doesn't feel like anything's missing. You won't see what the big deal is. So watch those leaders who do not glory in Jesus Christ. I'm not saying they're outside the faith necessarily. Even the best of us can lose sight of the cross from time to time. That's just part of the normal sanctification process. All I'm saying is that even regenerate church leaders can unintentionally introduce error into the church when they fail to set their hope on Jesus Christ. So pay close attention to those leaders who are no longer talking about Jesus and about the cross specifically. And when possible, do what you can to pick them back up. Help them to redirect their focus on Jesus. Because as I said last week, when you do this, when you help the leaders in their sanctification, you're not just ministering to them. You're ministering to the entire body of Christ. Again, the body is only going to be as healthy as its heart. So you love the body when you take care of the heart. With that in mind, let's close this morning by praying for the health of our church leaders. Let's pray.